everyone, and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast. I'm Duncan Rayburn, and I'm very sorry to keep you waiting for the concluding episode of the Exodus series, but because of various other goings on life-wise and work-wise, I've been somewhat distracted, uh, or perhaps a little bit overworked. Instead of keeping quiet, though, I thought I'd share something with you that I wrote a number of years ago for a book uh, that was printed in Afrikaans in 2013. The book's title was Omte Mach Dunk, which basically means uh, to be allowed, to be allowed or given permission to think. And the chapter's title there was Verbeelding in Christenskap, and the English translates to Imagination and Christianity. In fact, I wrote the thing in English, so what you will hear is a slightly modified version of what was eventually translated for that book. It is old, so um, there, there are possibly some points that I'd want to refine, but it was written for a popular audience. It wasn't supposed to be overly academic, and I think it's something that is rather enjoyable. Uh, so here is my chapter for that book, Imagination and Christianity, and it begins with the epigraph uh, by John Lennon, just this beautiful little line, reality leaves a lot to the imagination. There is a story told by Anthony de Mello about a man who goes off to explore the Amazon jungle. On returning, the explorer tries to tell his friends at home about all of his wonderful experiences, but finds that his stories do not do his subject any justice. Eventually, he tells the friends that it'll be better if they go and see the Amazon for themselves. He even draws a map to guide them. In a fit of excitement, they take the map and print many copies. They frame the original map in the town hall and set up different schools of cartography to interpret the meaning of the map with its various symbols of mountains, rivers, and forests. But they don't actually follow in the footsteps of the explorer and therefore do not ever go and see for themselves what he was trying to say. Sometimes talking about and defending the Christian faith can be like map making. This is a danger that apologists need to be aware of. We can get our words right and our rationalizations may exude great argumentative brilliance, but our words are not the reality. This is one of the lessons of the Incarnation. The word must become flesh. People do not get fed by the mere idea of bread or the mere idea of meat. They must taste and see the reality for themselves. This fits with what Andrew Davison writes. The Christian faith does not simply or even mainly propose a few additional facts about the world. Rather, belief in the Christian God invites a new way to understand everything. Alison Milbank agrees with this when she points out that the task of apologetics is not to sell God as an object of credence so much as to offer a whole way of regarding our experience and beginning to integrate our experience. It seems to me that this was an important part of the aim of the remarkable person who is at the center of the Christian faith, a humble, poor, first-century Jewish rabbi named Jesus. When I read about Jesus in the New Testament, I am always surprised by his teaching strategy. He did not come wielding proofs for God's existence or opinions about natural theology. He did not speak with any sort of clarity on concepts of causation, motion, contingency, and teleology. He did not bother to explain how these pointed to a definite origin or goal. In fact, he did not seem too concerned with proving the existence of the supernatural at all. Instead, amidst great and sometimes miraculous acts of kindness and compassion, 
he wove together metaphors about wind and salt and wineskins, and he told stories. The Jesus I discover in those first century texts is a poet, not a rationalist. I mention this not to diminish the value of more complex rational arguments, nor to suggest that the historical Jesus of the Bible is philosophically illiterate. Indeed, the subtlety and effect of Jesus' teachings demonstrate that he is certainly one of the greatest intellects to have walked this earth. However, I want to point out the poetic nature of Jesus' teachings to highlight a primary difference between the biblical worldview and the expectations of a number of biblical critics. This Jesus was part of a very particular kind of culture, one that was definitely not trying to figure out how many days God really took to make the world or even how old the earth really is. His was a culture of imagination, much more so than the culture that most of us are familiar with, despite our 3D movies, special effects, extravaganzas, and varying fashions. Most biblical scholars would agree that the Bible has never been a scientific textbook and should never be treated as one. For example, certain scholars point out that the creation story in Genesis 1 deals with what may be called a functional ontology rather than a material ontology. What this means is that it describes not how God brought things into material existence or how the Big Bang may have occurred, but rather explains how things fit together in a created order. Genesis 1 is about the meaning of creation, and so expecting it to tell us about the actual process of creation is as ridiculous as expecting a mathematics textbook to explain the nature of love. My point here is that we need to be careful when it comes to how we read the Bible. It does not help, for instance, to look for answers to questions that the writers of the Bible were not themselves asking. It also does not help to read it as a product of Western modernity, when it is, in fact, the product of Near Eastern pre-modernity. Amidst many historical tales, and together with references to actual factual events, the Bible also celebrates the imagination. Indeed, it seems to me that it would be impossible to understand the message of the Bible without an imagination. Unfortunately, along with the many good things given to us by the Enlightenment came a growing distrust in the imagination that the biblical Jesus prized so highly. But this is only because people came to mistakenly assume that imagination is opposed to and even harmful to reason. The truth is quite the opposite. Some of the greatest philosophers who have ever lived, including Hume, Kant, Schelling, Sartre, and Wittgenstein, among many others, have argued for the importance of the imagination. Imagination, contrary to popular opinion, is not just concerned with making up fictional stories that entertain us when we're bored or have nothing better to do. Instead, imagination may be defined as the power of understanding, creating, and connecting things through meaningful forms. Imagination is what allows us to bring into presence things like the past and the future that are absent or invisible. It allows us to conceive of abstractions like ideas, scientific formulas, and two-dimensional representations. It also gives us tools through which we can look at familiar things in a new light. This reminds me of a joke that tells of a woman who stops her car next to a pedestrian in a small town to ask him for directions to the post office, only to be told, I'm sorry, madam, but you cannot get there from here. <laughs> it sounds outrageous, but here is an example of a man who possesses reason without imagination. That is, 
He possesses some kind of understanding, but he lacks the ability to conceive of things outside of a familiar paradigm. C.S. Lewis offers that while reason may be viewed as the organ of truth, imagination is the organ of meaning. Imagination is the ability to see beyond the limits of our current knowledge. It does not obscure truth, but provides a context for it. This is why Albert Einstein suggests that imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited. Imagination encircles the world. He is not saying that imagination and knowledge are opposites, but that the imagination is a crucial component of our ability to know anything. Carl Sagan claims that imagination will often carry us to worlds that never were, but without it, we can go nowhere. Both of these great scientists agree that reason and the imagination are interdependent. One without the other is likely to go astray. Indeed, Davison emphasizes that human reason is imaginative. Thomas Aquinas points out that truth is something good, otherwise it would not be desirable, and good is something true, otherwise it would not be intelligible. Here Aquinas notices that facts do not make for a meaningful life on their own. What is needed is something akin to desire, and I would argue that imagination answers to this need. This is to say that anyone who tries to reason without imagination fails, not because he is being too reasonable, but because he is not being reasonable enough. Imagination gives us the ability to have empathy with the views and opinions of another person, even if he or she is wrong. It allows us to see the perspectives of others as if from the inside. A person without imagination cannot even begin to conceive of the possibility that their own perspective may be lacking in any way. To see what I mean, consider the following story from 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who came to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now David could have pointed out that objectively or factually speaking, he was not that man, but he had some imagination and it allowed him to recognize that the story reflected something of his own corruption. In his own homemade soap opera, David had committed adultery with another man's wife and then later organized to have that man killed to cover up his own crimes. Imagination is what allowed him to see how badly he had been at fault. It had given him room to notice the flaws of his own reasoning. It is worth acknowledging that we all begin at any moment with a particular limited understanding of reality. This is what can be referred to as a worldview or personal ideology. This worldview is founded on confirmation biases, which are those prejudices or prejudgments that determine what we are willing 
and able to accept. When dealing with matters of belief, it is important to recognize that we all have a tendency to stick to what we are comfortable with. Even to our detriment, we tend to treat our personal knowledge as territory that needs to be secured and defended. This is wonderful if what you already believe is true, but it is a terrible problem if what you believe is only half true or even utterly false. In my experience, people tend to find what they are looking for. If you are looking for reasons to disregard the validity of Christian faith, for instance, you will almost certainly find them. But many people remain skeptical of Christianity not because they lack plausible evidence, but because they simply don't want to be convinced by the evidence. However, we often think that confirmation bias like halitosis and ideology is always something everyone else has. We need to notice that this is a universal condition that no one is exempt from. This means that some people can have very poor reasons for remaining within the Christian faith, just as some people can have very poor reasons for remaining outside it. The question then should not be one of whether Christianity is the preference that fits your own confirmation biases, but whether or not it is actually true. Ultimately, it is imagination that allows us to leap from a current confirmation bias to a new truth. It may surprise you to know this, but it is imagination that convinces us that it is not the tooth fairy that collects our teeth and that Santa Claus doesn't deliver our Christmas presents. It is also imagination that compels us to consider the possibility that we do not know everything about everything. In other words, it is precisely our imaginations that stop us from reasoning wrongly. Imagination is not just the faculty for seeing what is not there. It is the faculty that allows us to recognize what is really there. It is what gives us the ability to change our minds, to both expand and contract our worldviews. Broadly speaking, there are two types of worldviews, closed and open. Variations on these two types of worldviews are almost endless depending on cultures, religions and individuals. A closed worldview assumes that reality is only that which we can perceive through our senses. It includes various dimensions of human freedom, faith, imagination, free will and thought, and nature, human beings in and seeking to understand the sensate world. On the other hand, an open worldview includes all of this, but it also assumes that there is more to reality than what our senses can tell us. Of course, anyone who knows about infrared light and dog whistles would happily agree with the reasonability of such an idea. Such things can only be perceived if they are translated into a medium that our senses have access to. It is imagination that allows us to conceive of these things, and things like electrons and quarks in atoms, even though they lie beyond the reach of our immediate sensory perception. People with an open worldview tend to believe in the possibility, and even the probability, of the supernatural. That is, they accept the possibility that all that exists is not fixed only within the parameters of materiality. This could include the belief in things like angels, demons, gods, or even the supreme uncreated God who transcends the supernatural. Some people, especially those who stick to a closed worldview, argue that they will only accept what they can perceive for themselves. But this is never quite true. For example, I accept that the Roman Empire existed at one point in history, even though I have never seen the Roman Empire for myself, nor will I ever see it since it no longer exists. 
I also accept that the earth revolves around the sun, even though my senses tell me that it must be the other way around. There is much that all of us take on faith, whether we hold to an open or closed worldview, including the absolutely unprovable assumptions that there is an ordered world outside our minds, and that our minds have the ability to know and decipher this order. Therefore, what is at stake here with regard to the acceptance of the supernatural is not just a question of what we can or cannot perceive, but of what is or is not reasonable to accept. Once again, what we will find reasonable to accept has a lot to do with confirmation biases that are already in place. It is worth asking at this point if believing in the possibility or actuality of the supernatural or uncreated isn't really the same thing as believing in the tooth fairy or Santa Claus. Isn't belief in a transcendent God something we should similarly grow out of? Let's begin to tackle this issue by thinking about what it means to enter a fictional world. After all, fiction is one of the primary tools used by Jesus in his teaching. We all know that when we enter a world of story, the storyteller is implicitly asking us to suspend disbelief. When we watch a movie or read a novel, we must be able to accept the world that the story represents in order to discover what the story is telling us. So inevitably, we accept the existence of elves, fairies, unicorns, orcs and superheroes, as well as more realistic portrayals of fictional characters and worlds, even though we know that such things do not objectively exist. This is precisely what Sagan means when he says that imagination will often carry us to worlds that never were. Nevertheless, this temporary acceptance of the imaginary does not mean that we have utterly abandoned reason. There is, after all, a difference between the imaginary and the imaginative. In fact, the very suspension of disbelief that drives our engagement with the story includes the very definite knowledge that such things as elves, fairies, unicorns, orcs and superheroes do not objectively exist. When it comes to imagined worlds, we suspend disbelief only because we know what we already believe. We suspend disbelief because we are not at all confused about what is real and what is not. A sane person always knows the difference between the real and the non-real. Nonetheless, you will notice that we do not suspend disbelief about everything in a story. Even if you don't believe that fictional princes will always rescue fictional princesses, it is perfectly reasonable to believe that love can drive people to do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do. Even if you don't believe in witches and ogres, you would probably find it perfectly acceptable to believe that the world has had its fair share of villains. After all, we have heard of Hitler, Stalin and Mao. The mere facts of an imagined story may not be objectively true, but they still point to dimensions of our human experience that are difficult, if not impossible, to deny. Imagination, as it is expressed in nearly every story you have ever enjoyed, highlights what is worth living or dying for, what is wise or foolish, meaningful or meaningless. Imagination helps us to come face to face with the meaning of essential values, justice, truth, charity and hope. Imagined worlds have a way of pointing to realities beyond empirical facts. In other words, imagination is always integrally connected to what may be called transcendent values. Therefore, even at the end of reading about St. George and the dragon, we generally do not believe that dragons exist. Nevertheless, we find it perfectly acceptable that dragons like tyrants and criminals 
can and should be brought to justice. Of course, the question must be asked, where do these transcendent values come from? If they are nothing but the accidental results of material and cultural processes, then we need not be bothered with them. But if they have their source elsewhere, beyond the fictions we create and the lives we live, they may be very important signposts. And the point about these signposts is that they give us a window into the mind of the author. In other words, these transcendent values tell us something about what the storyteller believes about the world that he or she has made. This calls to mind certain arguments about moral causality, including the suggestion that if there is a moral law, then it is reasonable to assume that there is a moral lawgiver. It's not my aim to tackle this argument here. Instead, I want to discuss the issue that underlies this particular argument, namely the fact that at the end of a story, we naturally have a sense that it is in fact meaningful. After all, imagination is what gives us the ability to perceive this meaning. Whether we suspend disbelief or not, we still cannot help but make meaning out of the world we encounter. Even the cry that everything is meaningless is found in the form of words that are themselves meaningful. Even if we cannot accept the existence of God, we cannot get away from meaning. Even arguments against the existence of God rely entirely on the persistence of meaning. Imagination, as the engine of meaning, has a hold on us whether we like it or not. Even when we escape the world of facts, when we read a fairy tale or a parable by Jesus, we still end up with a sense that the world of fiction must be reasonable, even when it is not realistic. As I mentioned earlier, the Jesus of the New Testament never attempts to prove the existence of God, even though it is clear that he worked from this assumption. Instead, his project, which was to remind people of the reign and rule of this God, centered around challenging people about how they related to this world of meaning. Jesus told parables like the one that Nathan told David, as if he was constantly asking his audience, which character in my stories is most like you? Or, is this the kind of story that you want to be a part of? In the end, Jesus lived a good story. I don't think that we would still be talking about him 2,000 years after he walked the dusty streets of first century Palestine if his life had been mediocre. It's not that Jesus makes everything better or that he will make you rich or give you all the answers to any question you have ever asked. To believe that is to confuse the language of infomercials with genuine theology. But the way of Jesus promotes a life that is truly meaningful. This, I think, is part of what he means when he says that he offers an abundant life. This brings to mind Donald Miller's book A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, in which he explores what it means to live a good story. He notices that a lot of people seem to spend a lot of energy claiming that ultimately life is meaningless, but Miller says this in response. I've noticed something. I've never walked out of a meaningless movie thinking that all movies are meaningless. I only thought the movie I walked out of was meaningless. I wonder then, if when people say life is meaningless, what they really mean is their lives are meaningless. I wonder if they've chosen to believe their whole existence is unremarkable and are projecting their dreary life on the rest of us. If I'm honest, there are many reasons why I still believe in the truth of Christianity and especially the truth of the life of the Jesus of the New Testament. Obviously, things like causation, motion, contingency and teleology do seem to me to point to a definite origin or goal. In addition, I find historical research into the life, death and resurrection of Jesus tremendously compelling. 
With regard to the resurrection, I find it impossible when looking critically at the evidence to believe that Christianity could have taken on the shape that it did apart from such a remarkable event. I also find the Christian stance against scapegoating violence and sacrifice to be one of the most significant cultural and religious advancements in the history of humanity. But all of this begins here. I find in the person of Jesus and in the stories he told an invitation to stand in wonder at the mystery of meaning that is woven throughout the cosmos. The transcendent values that are the glue for every story I have ever enjoyed seem to speak very clearly of some kind of divine presence in all things. Despite the many ongoing failings of the Christian church and despite the many problems in the world, I'm confronted with this very stark truth. Whether I like it or not, life seems to be meaningful beyond the fictions we create. And, as imagination teaches us, if life is meaningful, then perhaps there is someone to mean it. I acknowledge, of course, that imagination and reason are not enough to convince anyone of the truth of Christianity or of the reality of God. We also need revelation, and we certainly need faith. If a grand storyteller really is out there, we would not be able to communicate with him any more than a character in one of Shakespeare's plays would communicate with Shakespeare. The author of life, this inexpressible good, this one, this source of all unity, this supra-existent being, mind beyond mind, word beyond speech, would need to make himself known. He would need, so to speak, to come down to our level. Even at the risk of being utterly misunderstood, he would need to speak to us in a language that we could understand. And this is the message of Christianity, that this is precisely what this grand storyteller has done. I accept naturally that even if or when this is difficult or impossible to believe, it remains undeniably meaningful. I may attempt to explain it away, but I cannot explain my desire for an explanation. Thank you.